Southern Skies. Online Media. folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 48 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Fisher. with me as always is Grant McCarran. G'day mate. G'day mate, how are you doing today? Uh, not too bad, not too bad and joining us also from Adelaide, South Australia is Baz Sheffers. Hi Baz. G'day, how are you? I'm very good mate. Now this is a very uh, timely and uh, important episode. We've got a, a wonderful discussion today which um, actually I've had not that much to do with. Uh, Baz, uh, you and Grant have uh, been having a uh, very interesting chat to a, a very prominent aviator uh, regarding the implementation in Australia of ADSB. That's correct. Bill Hamilton is, uh, well, I basically ran into him on the recreational flying forums and he was a very, very knowledgeable guy on the subject and also a very critical guy on the subject, which uh, is kind of like me. I'm not as knowledgeable him, but I'm, I'm pretty much as critical. And uh, so I, I checked out who he was and turns out that he's, uh, yeah, he is quite a prominent aviator. And so I asked him, uh, would you come on the show and have a chat with us about this? Of course, ADSB in Australia is, um, you know, right at the, the front of the pack when it comes to implementing this technology. And one of the concerns that we're sort of hearing around the traps here and there is that perhaps it's, you know, a bit of a case of change for change's sake, or, you know, we're, we're trying to get out there and, and be the first to do it so that we can uh, lead the rest of the world and all that sort of feel-good stuff. But whilst the technology is amazing in itself, there are some concerns at the way they're going to uh, structure it uh, here in Australia by comparison to uh, other countries around the world. Yeah, that's correct. And uh, the, my main concern is as a, as a recreational aviator, but this counts just as much for any GA, light aircraft uh, owner, operator, pilot. We're going to get this, uh, if Kessa and, and the minister get their way, You know, we're, we're going to get this force on us with huge expense, and uh, which is the main problem. Because like you say, the technology is great, or at least I'd say the capability is great, and I'm not sure about the technology. And that is really uh, why uh, Grant and I uh, got onto the blower to uh, Bill uh, one morning and recorded an interview. Yeah, because as we found out, it's not just the GA and recreational uh, aviation markets that are going to have it foist on them. It's it's all aviation in Australia. And even the airlines who have been big proponents for ADSB are suddenly discovering that they're going to be paying a lot of money and not getting a big benefit. Yeah, exactly. So that's why we decided to uh, have a chat with Bill. And uh, Bill is a former president of AOPA and also a former technical director of that organization. He's an outspoken critic of ADSB and voices his opinion in various flying forums on the internet and also more importantly in countless papers published in response to government proposals. Uh, but first, Bill, I want to ask you uh, about your uh, flying history because I understand you've been doing that for quite some time. That's correct. Uh, just one thing I would like to emphasize, Bass, is that I'm not a critic of ADSB per se. I'm a critic of Australian plans to mandate it for a vast range of small aircraft where it provides no tangible benefit. Now, yes, I've been flying since 1961. I just started off flying for fun. Just uh, it's amazing the way things turn out. I wound up working for Qantas, which was quite a change from having been in the concrete business. And uh, so 
I spent all but for a couple of months, 35 years, working for Qantas. And which uh, types did you uh, fly for Qantas? Well, I started off, as we all did in those days, on the DC-3. And then I went from there to the 707, 338. A couple of, during the inevitable economic downturns in the worldwide economy, I spent some time out of the company uh, because I was surplus to requirements. In, I spent two years with Air New Guinea, and then subsequent to that, I spent uh, two years with British Midlands, also flying 707s in the UK. Came back home again, uh, got checked out on the jumbo, did an initial command on the jumbo, but that was in preparation to go off to the then brand new 767 with the brand new glass, so-called glass cockpit, etc., I spent a number of years on the 767, uh, including doing a period as a check and training captain. And then for the last few years, last five or six years up till uh, my uh, retirement, I spent on the 747-400. Wow, that's a fantastic uh, range of aircraft, all the way up from the, uh, the light GA to the piston-pounding airliners to the full glass cockpit. Yes, and um, I, I wouldn't even try and list the number of light aircraft I've flown because um, if I mentioned some of the names, people wouldn't even know what I was talking about. This <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. And uh, are you still involved with aviation at the moment? Oh, yes, yes. I'm still a representative of a group on the CASA Standards Consultative Committee. I'm on a couple of the specialist subcommittees of the Standards Consultative Committee. Until just recently, I was uh, president of the Sydney Metropolitan Airport's Business Council, a a Chamber of Commerce type organisation. And uh, I have an aviation consultancy, which is involved across a number of fields, but specifically GNSS generically GPS operating procedures. So that's a fairly specialist sort of business. I also understand you're currently rebuilding or refurbishing an Aero Commander, is that correct? Oh yes, Um, some years ago I bought an old 500A Aero Commander, an aeroplane that had spent most of its life with the old New Zealand Department of Civil Aviation. And, uh, but that rebuild given the present uh, investment market, is going quite slowly, I must admit that. Well, at least uh, you know, keep tinkering with aircraft, because uh, I understand from uh, speaking to you earlier uh, that you've got uh, quite an engineering background or interest or experience as well. Uh, yes, I don't have formal qualifications as a professional engineer. I left university before I accumulated those, but I've got considerable practical experience. Well, that's sometimes... a uh, just as good. I mean, I'm, I like to say uh, I'm a computer guy, but I also know uh, enough about electronics and uh, radio to be uh, dangerous. Hence, uh, <laughs> I've got a keen interest in ADSB uh, technologies myself as well, from not just uh, the regulatory and the practical side of things, but also the uh, the engineering. Yeah. And uh, that's really why uh, why we've got you on, because currently there's a uh, discussion paper from, from CASA out about their uh, timetable for implementing ADSB in Australia. Um, now, before we get to that, I think a lot of people don't really understand or know what ADSB capabilities are and how it works. So first, I'd, I'd like to have you explain to us what say the, the the rosy scenario being painted of all the advantage we're going to get out of ADSB are? Well, first of all, Bass, if I might backtrack a bit, and the the first question perhaps is what is ADSB? And in its simplest form, ADSB 
is a name for a particular kind of data link. And it is only a data link, and the kind of information that's carried uh, is relatively independent of the way it's carried. Now, that means, in reality, there are three systems approved for ADSB in aviation use by the International Civil Aviation Organization, ICAO. Those three are called UAT, a system uh, in widespread use in the US by civil and military. On the other side of the Atlantic, a system called VDL-4. VDL is VHF data link, and there's VDL-1234. The VDL-4 is a VHF data link, which along with other information, carries the ADSB data as just part of what's broadcast across the link. And both those two that I've mentioned are both relatively modern broadband data links. The third system approved by ICAO was a late runner, and it's a very narrow band, very, very limited system, which in reality hails from World War II technology uh, which transformed into, by various steps and stages, the modern-day aircraft transponders, with which we're all pretty familiar, I think. And the system that's been adopted for high-flying operations, and I mean as in height, airline aircraft, and aircraft generally operating above, say, 20,000 feet or more, is the latter. Uh, this is... 1090 ES, as it's called. Well, 1090 is just a reference to the frequencies over which the old-fashioned transponders operate. And ES is extended squitter, which is another way of saying a mode S transponder, uh, which, as well as the normal mode C data that m most of the aircraft transponders produce, it can take additional data in vacant message slots. So that's how in 1090 ES, the system that's been adopted for everybody, whether they like it or not in Australia, is the one that's to be used here. Okay, so once you have that capability in your aircraft, uh, regardless of the technology it's based on, what capability does it give you as a pilot and also air traffic control? Well, uh, it, all it does in its simplest form ADS, so-called ADSB out, and this is the ADSB for the benefit of air traffic control, is it gives you a little bit more information compared with mode C because it directly transmits the aircraft's GPS position to the ATC computers and it then presents on the screen based on the geographical position, latitude and longitude, as opposed to presenting on the screen as a result of the radial sweep and distance. So that means that even in areas with no radar coverage at all, uh, ATC, if they have a receiver on the ground that can receive your transmissions, um, they can see it on their screens? Yes, they can if they choose to display it on the screen. What will happen in practice, and nobody really wants to talk about this, 
is uh, you'll recall, Bash, that normally if you're flying VFR and you have a transponder, you'll have code 1200. They're generally suppressed by ATC so that you don't have a whole lot of light aircraft cluttering up their radar screens. Yeah, exactly. Not radar screens any longer, are they? They're a computer-generated picture. And they are rather large-scale, so that one controller is controlling quite a large chunk of Australia. And, um, for example, if you had a couple of crop dusters working some cotton paddocks, you'd, on the radar screen, it'd be looking like a couple of flies buzzing around in a bottle. And uh, <laughs> that doesn't help anybody. So it's normal to suppress the 1200 return so that the traffic that ATC is actually concerned with is not obscured by other returns. And I think it's quite reasonable to forecast, and I'm not just guessing here, I know a little bit about some of the plans, that for the VFR traffic broadcasting ADSB out, which is not of interest to ATC, in other words, in Class G airspace, will be suppressed. Okay, so ATC can choose not to look at you, not to care about you in the outback, uh, flying low level in your recreational aircraft. But understand ADS-B, there's also the in side of things, where other aircraft uh, would be able to see your position in a, uh, a TCAS-like system, except for a uh, supposedly a fraction of the cost. Let's, let's break this up into two parts. The great protagonists for you and I and everybody else having to spend thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 on equipping an aeroplane that mightn't even be worth that much with ADS-B is so that regional airlines going around uncontrolled airfields in the Class G airspace or for that matter uh, aerodromes that might be contained in Class E airspace can see other traffic in the area. Well, you can do that if the other traffic has got a mode C transponder. It doesn't require ADS-B out. To because be that's what TCAS-2 already does. Well, that's correct. TCAS-2 standards have existed for some years to feed an ADS-B out signal from aeroplane A into an aeroplane with TCAS-2. Now, um, if I can just take a, a minute or so, there are various modes of operation in TCAS-2. The full house one requires two aircraft, both similarly equipped, where the TCAS talks backwards and forwards and coordinates any necessary escape manoeuvres for each aircraft. In the case of an aircraft with just a transponder with mode C, there the can be no backwards and forwards interaction because the little aeroplane or the other target, whatever you want to call it, is not carrying TCAS 2. But it does see the mode C. In fact, it'll see just a mode A. With mode C, of course, there'll be height information there. So with somebody with a glass cockpit, what will be presented in front of them is a return, and it'll have a height on it. And you'll be able to see the relative rate of movement roughly from where your aeroplane is on your screen in front of you versus where the various targets are. If you put the small aircraft broadcasting ADS-B out, it's intercepted by the aeroplane with TCAS-2, and the aeroplane with TCAS-2 has actually been modified to take the 
ADS-B in signal, it will be presented in exactly the same way as if it was a mode C signal that was being processed by TCAS2. Now that's a long-winded way of saying that to the regional airline aircraft, if it has been modified so that ADS-B signals are processed by its TCAS, the pilots will be presented with exactly the same information in the cockpit as if they only had the target aircraft broadcasting a normal transponder mode C. So to those people, the people who have been most vocal about demanding everybody have ADS-B, it provides them at an uncontrolled airfield with no additional capability compared with just having the target aircraft broadcasting mode C. And, and what about for uh, people like me? If I were to equip my aircraft, not with a full TCAS system, obviously, but with uh, an ADS-B in uh, receiver coupled to my, uh, my GPS display that I already have, well, uh, what, what get, will it give me? Well, it depends whether your GPS display will process the signals. If you happen to have some of the Garmin equipment to add to your already $30,000 bill, and you're using a Garmin top-of-the-line transponder, which is ADS-B capable, yes, you can display the other traffic. Now, there's a number of things. We've done a num some analysis of this, and one of the people who's helped me in this is a bloke who not only is uh, an ATC risk management expert, but he also knows a lot about gliders. And gliders are one area where collisions do happen because you get gliders operating very close together because they're both chasing the same thermal. So uh, if you exclude gliders from the mid-air collision history, you rapidly move to a number very close to zero. In other words, outside of gliders and perforce the way they operate, mid-air collisions are extremely, extremely rare events. And even However, then, uh, they tend to have a history of not actually happening in uncontrolled airspace, but more likely in the circuit at controlled aerodromes or at the approach point for uh, Class D aerodromes uh, as well. Yeah, yes, like well, that, they, they have certainly happened uh, occasionally over the years, but as a percentage of the total number of movements, and the, uh, as a percentage of the total number of accidents and fatal accidents, it's very small. And if I can digress, Bass, I would suggest that when we examine each and every one of those, we can see a failure of basic training, a failure to keep a proper lookout. Now, the reason I bring this up is not just because we could make inroads into those problems by improving basic training and education of pilots without spending 30 grand on TCAS. One of the great problems of technology, for technology's sake, as opposed to some smart way of addressing a problem for which there is no other solution, uh, technology for technology's sake can have negative benefits, introduce serious safety risks. Now, if we already have a training problem where pilots are A, not trained well enough, and B, not disciplined enough, to keep a proper lookout for other aircraft, 
We now introduce technology to see other aircraft for them and they wind up head down in the cockpit still looking for other aircraft and not looking out the window. There's two problems with this once again. The first problem is scale and presentation on whatever it has you have in front of you. In the simple systems, trying to work out exactly where the other aircraft is, is not straightforward because your presentation will not take account of drift. It won't necessarily take account of the immediate trajectory of the aeroplane. All you'll have is little symbols on your screen of other traffic. Symbols that can be quite close together, but in fact are two miles away. So using that to actually organise operations around a circuit, as opposed to just notification of other traffic, would be a very foolish thing to do because it is not accurate enough. There are too many variations in the presentation as to what's really going on as to what immediately appears on the screen. The second thing is, and this is probably, with our analysis, the biggest single danger, because we see this all the time with mandatory radio procedures in Australia. We see time and again in the incident reports that pilots are lulled into a false sense of security. They make a call and they hear nothing. Therefore, there is nothing there. It's amongst the a very noisy small group of professional pilots. It's an article of faith. They religiously believe that there are vast numbers of blundering bug smashers, pilots, weekend warriors and other derogatory terms who don't use their radios to save landing fees. I'll relate one interesting incident in which I had some direct involvement in, a, in analysis. It was at Lismore some little while ago and a light aircraft landed, then a regional airline aircraft landed. And the captain of the first officer came over and started berating the light aircraft pilot. You didn't do this, you didn't do this, you didn't make all these mandatory calls. And it turns out that the captain of the light aircraft pilot, in fact, was a highly experienced pilot and a quite senior Commonwealth bureaucrat. Oops. Oh dear. And he said, they said to the captain and first officer who were jumping up and down and waving their hands around about incompetent, blundering bug smashers and all their usual epithets. You made all your broadcasts on the PAL lighting frequency. <laughs> oh, dear. The only reason I relate all this story, Bass, and there's many others like it, there's many others that have been turned up in the research that's been done. And we've done extensive surveys three times in the last 10 years, and each time the claims of this small group of airline pilots have been disproven, but they don't accept it. The scientific evidence done by suitably qualified people in the field, they simply don't accept it because their religion tells them that blundering bug smashers and weekend warriors don't broadcast on the radio to save landing fees. Well, of course, I am one of those... Uh Buck smashes and weekend warriors, and in my experience, uh, especially at the smaller uh, uncontrolled airfields, uh, I find them the most professional, to be honest, when it comes to radio calls. Well, I, uh, I would agree with you, and for those who, th this is the clincher, this is the real clincher that illustrates that those of us who are flying our own aircraft or light aircraft 
And you've got to understand, Bass, that despite my 25,000 hours and ATPLs from two or three different countries, as soon as I get in a light aircraft, I'm automatically assumed by these uh, professionals to be a blundering bug smasher because otherwise why would I be flying one of these aeroplanes? <laughs> now, the clincher, we have found quite a number of cases of either not using a call sign at all or using another aircraft's call sign. In other words, the sports rec private pilots are well aware of the importance of making proper radio calls around a circuit, doing it sensibly, as you've mentioned. I hesitate to use the word professional because the examples I hear from professional pilots is not what I would regard as a good example. And I agree with you as, as a long-time professional pilot, I agree with you entirely that the most proper behaviour that I regularly observe at country airfields, uncontrolled airfields, is from people like you. That they try hard, they don't assume they've got a right to the sky, and they understand the importance of radio broadcast to get proper situational awareness of other traffic. Now, I used to get a lot of bills for my aircraft that I used to have once, a fairly well-known aircraft, because people would use somebody else's call sign. Or they'd just say, red Cessna downwind. They, they'd make sure that they weren't identified through the recording devices that help people send out, send out bills to you. But to me, that's the clincher that these people understood the importance of proper radio calls. And they were either, depending on your point of view, smart enough or criminally inclined enough to still avoid the necessary charges. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's interesting because uh, I uh, a while ago there was uh, another memo out from uh, the Arios operations manager where he he mentioned this and said the proper radio call is type and registration. So I would be Sportstar forty four sixty seven. I often hear and I you know I do this myself. Yeah, I also I always use that, but I add to it saying. I'm following the yellow RV yep. um, because that's a much, much better way to make sure that you know, what you, who you're following, uh, identify yourself to other people who might not know what a, a thruster is. Uh, you know, great if you do your call sign with it, but honestly, I don't really care about your call sign. No. It's not going to help me anything. Bass, whether you realize it or not, what you're doing is actually complying with the philosophy of the new car 166. And that's the rule for operations around uncontrolled aerodromes. And the, 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 one of the great problems we've had in Australia for many years is we've had mandatory this, mandatory that. This is what you must say. And then there's the implication has always been, and that's all that you say. Now, Australia has been very strong on mandatory this, mandatory that. People have often said it's to do with our convict heritage that we'll only take orders from, from the guards. I hate to think that's true, but I've got a sneaking suspicion it might be true. Because ICAO requires communication. And communication is a two-way exchange of information, not a ritual 
chanting of the mantra, which is all too often what so-called Australian radio procedures are. I've seen it often enough in my own operations around the countryside where I imagine what must be going on in the cockpit. And it's going something like altimeters, 1013, set and cross-check, flaps, radio call. And then bang, the bike hits the tip. Alpha Bravo Charlie taxing Bathurst for so-and-so. Checks, confirm, flaps this, flaps that, blah, 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 ready for takeoff. In other words, the radio call was not other than a response to a checklist. It wasn't somebody looking around out the window, taking in what they'd been hearing, if they'd been hearing anything. In other words, the situational awareness importance of communications as opposed to executing mandatory radio procedures is completely lost. The, the important thing to realise is that we do not have, as a major aeronautical risk in Australia, mid-air collisions are not one of them. They're simply not one of them. Now, yes, we have had in, we've, we've had a collection of things happen in approaches to circuits in recent times. Each one has been a failure to keep a proper lookout. When you actually do the statistics, as have been done by others, not by me, the collision risk probabilities based on the fact that at Bankstown, if my memory serves me correctly, I think that at Bankstown or in the environs of Bankstown, there have been three mid-air collisions over about 30 years. Now, if you look at the movement rates at Bankstown, or even perhaps look at the movement rates of Jandicott, where there was a semi-mid-air collision a while back in that an aeroplane on the runway and another aeroplane landed on top of it. These are, they've all been failures of lookout. The first one I ever knew at Bankstown was a Dove and a Twin Comanche came together. Well, one of these aircraft had great big screens all round the windows. They were doing IFR training. The so-called lookout pilot could hardly look out. And that's one of the reasons why those kind of devices are no longer permitted and you have to use foggles or little, the pilot doing the practice instrument flying just got a little thing that he wears on his head to restrict vision. Failures of lookout would have solved most of the, if we hadn't have had the failures of lookout, we wouldn't have had the uh, collisions we have had. But the collisions we have had as a percentage of the number of millions of movements over those years, it's an incredibly small risk. Life is risky. There's inherent risks associated with aviation. All of those of us who commit aviation accept those risks, and the best way each of us can, we seek to minimise those risks to ourselves and others, and we accept the residual risk. Now, amongst the residual risks we accept, an actual mid-air collision occurring is so far down the list of problems that it's almost off the scale. And compared with an engine failure uh, on takeoff or around the circuit. Now, the figures we've got, there's an engine failure something like once every 200,000 movements. Compared with a collision, once every how many tens of millions of movements? So the first thing you have to understand as far as any potential benefits of ADS-B in might or might not be, 
And I would argue that it might not is the overriding thing here because it introduces additional hazards of head down in the cockpit when you shouldn't be looking out. But with proper circuit discipline and proper lookout, the probability of a mid-air collision is extremely remote. Now let me take that one further if I may. Well, how many VFR aircraft are there operating above 10,000 feet? And the answer is mm. not very many. Yeah, so the powerful one. was done and the results were instructive because all ICAO airspace designations are based on a constant risk. In those mid-levels, without any air traffic control being applied at all. The traffic was so sparse that for Class C, when you added Class C control on top of it, you got a nominal, about one in 10, 10 to the minus 13 chance of a collision. With Class E transparent to VFR, there was so little VFR at those levels, one in 10 to the minus 11. Now, both those are two or three orders of magnitude below the ICAO airspace planning risk level, uh, the yeah. separation assurance standard, which is 5 in 10 to the minus 9. But more graphically, 1 in 10 to the minus 11, 1 in 10 to the minus 13, that is roughly the probability of an asteroid big enough striking Earth to wipe out all warm-blooded life as we know it. you got more chance of winning the lotto. So are we seriously yes. suggesting we should adopt all these expensive practices and procedures to allay a risk that's the equivalent of wiping out the whole human race? Despite that, Kessa is on a path to, to make it mandatory for us to at least have ADSB out. Well, this is, this is, this is political pressure with respect to CASA, and I admit there are times I've been critical of CASA, and there'll be times in the future I'll be critical of CASA, this has been foist on them by the Minister's white paper. And what's in the white paper is very much a result of what political input has been to the people who wrote the white paper from Minister's staff and other sources, including representative organisations that might have the ear via their union connections. So this is where we come back to religious beliefs in what the problem is, as opposed to clearly scientifically enunciated beliefs. If you ran, a, if you ran an insurance company the way that uh, CASA are being forced to run this assessment for ADSB, you'd go out of business because you wouldn't get anyone insuring with you. I mean, there's clearly not been any assessment. I mean, I've done risk-based assessments for software systems. I've done software systems to help insurance companies. You assess the probability and the you know the likelihood versus the cost, and if you have something that's very very unlikely to happen, and the cost is not that much compared to the um, the cost of preventing it from happening altogether, then you just take it as an acceptable risk. That's right. You assess the risks. You assess the mitigation of the risks. You wind up with the residual hazard and the consequences. So it's yeah. and and you see, it doesn't matter whether it's air traffic control or whether it's financial risk management, any form of risk management, the principles are exactly the same, Grant. Exactly, and they haven't done it for security. That's why we've got all this security theatre going on and we're putting heaps of money into these body scanners 
and yet we're not assessing where the real risk is coming from and no one's done anything about the famous uh, rental truck situation. You can still go and rent a truck, pack it full of stuff and park it in front of a building. Well, you see, with due respect, Grant, all those assessments have been done and they've been politically ignored. Well, yeah, they've done them, but no one's acted on them. Yeah. That's right, because they're not up front in front of the public. You know, the politically being seen to be doing something has got a considerable yes. cachet, whether it's effective or not, because, yeah. you know, you've got to do something. Yeah. Now, in I fact, we have done extensive risk analysis uh, for air traffic control over the years. In fact, some of the tools that are used here for risk analysis, uh, they've been developed pretty intelligently over the years. Whether they've been used intelligently is another thing because, you know, like any risk assessment process, garbage in, garbage out, but properly used, they're very effective and they, in fact, form the basis of ICAO's airspace risk assessment. But that's when it all falls apart in Australia because we work out all these risks then when it doesn't coincide with our religious beliefs, we ignore them. There's been extensive cost-benefit analysis done of ADSB as it applies to light aircraft. It's been done on multiple occasions. Um, in fact, some of the one of the particular uh, cost-benefit analysis done by one of the big consulting firms, and I don't want to name names because I don't want to wind up being done for defo. <laughs> um, but their problem, this group that did it, and they're a renowned organisation, was that the information they were given to work with yeah, was not parameters. appropriate. So, in fact, we had garbage in, garbage out. And it wasn't, in, it wasn't in effect, a cost-benefit analysis at all. It was a cost-effectiveness analysis. And, Grant, if you've been involved in these sort of things, you would realise the difference. Because... A cost-benefit analysis says that if I spend X number of dollars, I get Y benefit. I spend the money, I get the benefit. What we're being asked to do here with ADSB is I spend the money and somebody else gets the benefit. That's a tax. Yeah. That's not cost-benefit. Now, one of the silliest things about all this is if you go back to the various discussion papers there's been, and the joint consultation paper that was done last year or early the year before, one of the reasons for having ADSB is, oh, then everybody will have to have C145 or 146 GPSs. Well, that's completely improper to include that in an ADSB analysis. Yeah. Because you can, you can have... C145, 146, all the garments with a W on the end of them, uh, without having to have ADSB. Now, air services want to pull out a whole lot of nav aids, ground-based nav aids, to save yeah. large amounts of money. But that's got nothing to do with ADSB. It's got everything to do with aircraft being fitted with C145, 146 type GPSs so that you can dispense with the requirement to have at least one ground-based navigation aid at an alternate. Because you can do GPS letdowns now on a C129 GPS, 
But you still have to have nav aids on board the aircraft and a ground-based nav aid independent of GPS for the IFR alternate. So all the benefits of having a C145-146 navigator are not dependent on fitting ADS-B. They've got nothing to do with ADS-B and they've got nothing to do with VFR either. There was also much talk about how they were not going, with ADS-B, they wouldn't have to replace the COSOR secondary surveillance radars that were standing on towers around various places around the country. Well, we took very serious issues with the quoted air services costs of replacing those radars in Australia because New Zealand had identical COSOR radars. And they were able to replace all their secondary surveillance radar heads with new equipment, new hardware, in other words, all the rotating gubbins with all the wearing bearings and things like that, plus all the new solid state software for something under $2 million per radar because most of the infrastructure was already there. The big tower was already there. The power supplies were already there, et cetera, et cetera. So they replaced them for something less than $2 million per radar head. And yet in the so-called cost-benefit analysis here, they were quoted as over $10 million. Uh, somebody, somebody quoted the cost of setting up a whole new one with all the infrastructure, right? Well, we don't know what they were really talking about other than that in terms of a cost-benefit analysis, it was nonsense. But more to the point, it was of no interest to VFR in class G airspace. Because even if all of a sudden, and, and, and it principally for, at, at, it was to, remember that air traffic control, radar, ADSB, all the other things air traffic control use, None of those have got anything to do with this magic word safety. What they've got to do with is expositing the traffic, increasing the amount of traffic that can be handled in a particular volume of airspace. And every now and again, when you have somebody doesn't turn up for work in air services, either the airspace goes to uncontrolled or they, in, they increase the separation standard. So yep. this is very important to understand that air traffic control radar and all the things that air traffic control use is not about safety per se. It's all about aircraft movement rates. It's all commercial considerations. It's not about safety. So despite the, uh, the many objections that you uh, have, uh, have given to why it's not really necessary to have ADSB. Kessa has set out on a timetable, and I want to look at that right now for a minute, and I'm going to focus on uh, the kind of flying uh, myself and I guess most of our listeners do, which is the, you know, the VFR, uh, mostly in Class G, maybe some Class G and, and Class C transits. Now, looking at the timetable, the first thing that stands out is that if you, have, if you register a new aircraft from December 2010, you must have ADS-B out. Uh, sorry, December 2013. 2013. Well, uh, I, as I said before, this has been foist on CASA. It's not something that CASA's thought up. It's what they've been required to do as a result of the government white paper. 
Now, it was accepted by those who in executive authority in CASA after the joint consultation paper and the previous efforts that there simply was no justification for a widespread mandate for ADSB. And it lay there. But that didn't stop small groups of principally regional airline pilots continuing to agitate industrially. And as a result of their political activities, it's all turned up in the white paper once again, despite the fact that it's been consistently shown to be a complete waste. Now, if enough people object once again, as they've done before, to these proposals, the politicians will have to take notice. Yeah, because if, if well, if it goes ahead as planned, it would, to me, it looks like it would mean that if I uh, tend to buy a set of plans and build myself a, a Corby Starlet, which I might spend, you know, I'll have an auto conversion engine in there and I'm, uh, I shop around for the parts, uh, it might cost me about $15,000 to buy the airplane and it'll be ready in, say, if I start now in uh, January 2014 and I want to put it on the register. Um, it looks now that that would mean that even if I want to fly that aircraft around my own paddock mostly and never really go anywhere where any RPT uh, traffic goes, I'm still going to have to spend the money on installing an ADSB out capability, which could be, you know, at least five, probably ten, maybe even more thousand dollars. Ben, it's going to be uh, a bass, I'm sorry. It's going to be a lot more than that because these so-called cheaper devices are, exist only in the imagination uh, of the people advertising them or they do not meet the Australian TSO standards or for that matter the FAA TSO standards for an ADSB out. They don't have C145 or 146 GPS receivers to provide the position information and except for the Garmin light aircraft equipment doesn't meet the DO-260A-260B requirements for a transponder. So we're really going to have to wait until uh, someone comes up with something that does comply and hopefully there'll be enough people that uh, supply uh, that equipment uh, so that there might be some competition and it might drive prices down. At some well, point. where we're stuck in Australia is this. We've got on the register, about 13,000 aeroplanes. 13,000 aeroplanes isn't enough for even one manufacturer to tool up if they had a monopoly. 13,000 transponders compared with modern production methods to get prices down, that's a cottage industry. And because Australia has chosen to go alone on this, 1090 ES transponders for light aircraft, there's never going to be a big mass market. It's not like UAT in the US, which apart from providing at least ADSB out and ADSB in if you want it, also provides a lot of other potential services because it's a broadband data link. So you can uplink real time weather and you can up you can uplink just about anything you like that you'd get on your home computer. But you won't be able to, won't be able to do that here. And that, yeah, that might make it uh, useful for uh, pilots in the US to say, hey, I can spend that $3,500 plus fitting 
of uh, a Garmin GTX 330 and uh, for that in return I get live weather and I get and I do get without any extra expense I do get a, a traffic information system but we're not going to get that are we? Well in the US you wouldn't be using a Garmin 330 you'd be using a UAT box which is a standalone box compared with the transponder whatever mode S or mode C transponder you might have fitted and um, whether you took your GPS feed from something like a Garmin 4 or 500XX-W or whether you took the uh, GPS feed from a standalone box, Garmin, if you look through their product list, have a standalone box which includes a suitable C146 GPS engine and the necessary circuitry uh, to provide ADSB in and out in UAT. And the interesting thing is that for the Garmin installations for Mode S here, or Mode S Extended Squitter ADSB, you buy this same Garmin box and just use the GPS part of it to feed the signal into the Garmin 330, the top, and it's got to be the top of the line. Mode S. And so you'll wind up in Australia if you go that way, which is presently the only certified way of going. You'll be carrying around a UAT transceiver in your aeroplane as well, completely useless in Australia. Oh, great. <laughs> yep. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm sure you're aware, uh, Bass, Grant, that the US is not planning to mandate ADSB for everything that moves and some things that don't below 10,000 feet. Yeah. Yeah, whereas here, if I look at the timetable, every aircraft, no matter where or how you use it, is going to have to have it if you register it after December 2013. But the big one coming up is in uh, January 2020, where it's going to be mandatory to have ADS-B out at listed busy regional aerodromes supporting RPT services. Um, so it's a bit vague. But I can imagine that uh, if in January 2020 I want to fly to Broken Hill, where they have a few uh, RPTs a day, uh, I'm going to have to make that investment. Otherwise, uh, I'm not allowed to fly Also, there. that the pilots of those RPT airplanes can have exactly the same information as if you just had a Mode C transponder. And it, it gets even more fun when you consider aircraft without an electrical system such as gliders, balloons, uh, little old warbirds, I mean, taking your cub, take a cub without an electrical system in. Uh, you know, it all starts to get really interesting because right now you can do some formation flight, you know, go as a loose formation with another aircraft with a transponder to get into a mode C area. But I would imagine with this ADS-B, you won't even be able to fly your uh, cub anywhere without having some sort of uh, battery-based transponder. If this whole program was based on proper risk assessment as opposed to political pressure, all these problems would go away because this would not exist. Eurocontrol is not planning to make mandatory ADSB for everything that moves. They have mandated mode S transponders for IFR traffic at low level, and they've only just done that in recent years. And a lot of people in, in the European theatre would have fitted a Mode S transponder in recent years anyway, updating transponders from a whole bunch of stuff of 30 years ago design, which were no longer acceptable to the 
ATC computers in Europe, but that's a relatively minor cost. But right now, with the only available certified equipment to meet Australian standards, and Australian standards for ADSB are not unique. We haven't done anything funny there. Um, but to meet that, the minimum cost of the Garmin equipment right now is about 30 grand. Ouch. Not, not five or six or 10, but 30. And, and that is installed that's in, in, in a, the aircraft flying. That's the estimates including installing, because the installation, uh, if you can find an avionics Lamy to do it for you, um, is about 30, 40%, maybe more, of the total cost of the job, depending on the details of the particular job. Yeah, because it's a, it's a change to the equipment in the aircraft. So you need a car 35 engineer, I believe, to do the work for you and do all the paperwork. And uh, it'll cost you $2,900 just for the electrical load analysis. And then you get the fun of uh, some of the uh, recreational Oz aircraft can't be modified because of the loophole in the law that you um, everything has to be done back through the original manufacturer, if I understand correctly. Well, that... For some of the LSAs, that's correct. Well, that not only applies to such things as light sport aircraft, certified aeroplanes, that applies to uh, large aircraft as well. And this is where it's interesting to see what direction manufacturers are taking. Mm -hmm. And it's only in the last couple of years that Airbus and... Uh, Boeing have started to offer aeroplanes with ADS-B out. Yep. They don't have any plans at this stage to offer ADS-B in because there's no customer demand for it because, as we've said, it doesn't matter whether it's a regional airline aircraft or an A380. There's no additional cockpit functionality as far as the crews are concerned by feeding an ADS-B in signal to TCAS2 versus the present setup. Now, it's important to understand that in the US, where there's huge amounts of traffic compared with here, and Grant, if you're flying around the northeastern US, you'll have experienced this yourself. Yeah. Um, the uh, it just even with that immense amount of traffic in the US, FAA only see ADSB out as an aid. To air traffic control. <clears throat> they don't see it as some great big safety panacea for collision risk avoidance, etc., etc., etc. And of course, as you probably know, there's going to be two coexisting ADSB systems in the US. Yeah. ES for airline aircraft or large high flying aircraft, and UAT for everybody else. As another aside, if I may, TALUS the European company, yep. is producing all the ground stations for the FAA for their ADSB system. And bearing in mind, we know that that ADSB system is going to cope with 1090 ES and UAT. Air Services Australia is also using the TALUS ground stations. Oh, no. And my advice is that the difference between the FAA ones to cater for both 1090ES 
and for UAT uh, are identical. It's just there'll be one card missing out of one card slot in the box. Oh, great. So how did we end up with that situation where we've got a completely different system which, which offers very little benefit and just high cost to especially... I have a game. cynical and paranoid answer to that. Well, this, this is... Um, Grant, I discussed this with Bass the other day. The whole story is really quite interesting and there's a certain amount of irony to it. Back in the, as I recall, late 70s, early 1980s, ICAO decided that in the future there was going to be a need for a broadband data link to do all sorts of things, including air traffic control data, removing a lot of routine communications from VHF voice to data links. And of course, in the airline business, we've been doing that now for, what, 15 years, um, I can't remember how long ago it was since we stopped having to battle with HF position reports out over yeah. the Pacific, and it all goes out on a data link. Yeah. Getting, getting our air traffic control clearances on data link at a lot of airports and things like that. And, but this was all relatively narrow band stuff, and with the expansion in need for comms, ICAO foresaw the need for broadband data link and had a competition. And the competition threw up two broadband systems. One was UAT in the US, um, which is essentially like current generation three mobile phones. It's CDMA, code division, multiplex transceivers. And the European system uh, was called VDL4, was time division multiplex, like second generation mobile yep. phone. Yep. So those were the two winners. But there's been some fairly horrible airline economics on and off in recent years with half of the American airlines staring bankruptcy in the face, the number of airlines that have been in and out of Chapter 11 and that sort of thing. And the patents for CDMA or TDMA were owned by companies which were outside the normal loop of aircraft avionics manufacturers. So one would presume they were going to have to pay royalties and all that sort of thing to have access to the patents. Somebody got the very bright idea that, oh, well, we could use the vacant DF-17, DF-18 message slots in our long-standing mode S transponders to transmit the ADSB data, or as we now get, there's also a thing called ADSC. Uh, and this was going to be quick, cheap, and easy, because all you needed uh, was feed the position information of the mode S transponder in a suitable format, and that would have go as the message. <laughs> Too quick, good cheap, to be true. Easy. We've already all got mode S transponders, which airlines have had for, most airlines have had for years and years. Well, as we now know, yeah. it was neither cheap nor easy. You could read all the nauseous details in the FAA NPRM where they've got quite extensive and quite accurate costings on how much 
it was going to cost to convert uh, a lot of existing aircraft to produce an ADS-B out signal. And bear in mind, we're talking about only ADS-B out. And um, here in Australia, we were going to subsidise all this, five or ten grand, whatever it was going to be, and 25 grand for airline aircraft. Well, yeah. uh, I do have some knowledge because it was all done in public presentations of how much it cost Qantas Link to convert some of their earlier Dash 8s to have an ADS-B out. And it was in the range of three, uh, four hundred to six hundred thousand dollars. The early ones were at the top end of the range, and then as they got to how, know how to do it, the latter aircraft that they weren't in the hangar for so long, not earning revenue and things like that. So the twenty-five wow, and subsidy wasn't going to go very far in four hundred grand, was it? That that was total downtime cost, loss of potential earnings and everything, not just the actual outlay, right? The the, the actual hardware costs were close to three hundred thousand oh dollars. Oh my god! But wow. not only was it as all all the air services presentations used to show a single wire. Going <laughs> beautiful box diagram to a transponder. I've seen this in IT, you know. <laughs> well, yeah. First of all, in the uh, in the Qantas Link aircraft, they were using FMCS systems and GPSs from a big company called Universal. Yeah. And it turned out all their existing universal boxes were not economically capable of being modified. They had to replace them all. They were using TDR-94D columns transponders. We all expected, and I've got some of them as well, I'm afraid, we all expected that columns would offer a modification to existing TDR-94D-00123 models, which most of us had, to enable ADS-B out. No such luck. Collins wants you to buy a whole brand new TDR-94D-800. Yeah, they've got to make their profit margin, mate. And so the 1090 ES route for the big operators turned out to be neither cheap simple or quick quite the opposite oh my and uh, in one of the presentations done by uh, Jetstar uh, they nominated by registration number some of their A320s which could not be modified because Airbus weren't offering any modification packages they would have to get rid of those aircraft and buy new aircraft that had ADSB out capability X factory, and they're not seventy or nineteen seventy or nineteen eighty aircraft. They're pretty new. Well, it's actually a lot easier to modify real early aircraft because you haven't got these completely tightly integrated avionics suits. Yeah, good point. Which are all certified, yeah. and in fact, it's the glass cockpit aeroplanes, which are very difficult to modify. I <laughs> the the first glass cockpits I flew were seven six sevens. And the big problem with the 767s in modifying them was that the computer systems they had, the flight management computer systems, were all based on the old uh, Motorola 8000 series processors, and you, as in your Apple IIe computer. Yep. 
which, you know, those of a historic bent might be able to remember back that far. Yeah, I used to have one. Yeah, well, yeah, that's, that was the computing power you had in the first systems in 757, 767s. It's kind of scary, isn't it? There, and then when, when we started to get bigger and bigger Jepson databases for all the maps, they had to increase. Don't quote me on the actual numbers, but it was something like they had to increase the memory from 5 meg to 10. Oh, but that's yeah. as far as you could go because that's all the processors could cope with. And, of course, yeah. all this has to be certified, which costs an absolute fortune. Yeah, that's the kicker, isn't it? The certification so, part. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it, if it's not off at X factory, it's the modern cockpits, the glass cockpits, that can be very, very expensive to modify to get ADS-B out. Yes, and, everyone was... And what, what all, it, all it provides in the Australian case is a synthetic radar-like display over continental Australia. Well, that's great. And that's a nice thing to have. Whether it's a must-have is something else. Because what one of the benefits of ADS-B is that you can reduce separation en route over continental Australia outside normal radar coverage. Well, why would you want to do that? To increase the amount of traffic you can handle. Well, that's good. But is there enough traffic there that can be handled so that it becomes a saving to the airlines because they don't get held down from an optimum cruising level, they don't get held up on an optimum track? And the answer is no. So there's theoretical benefits of having that transcontinental coverage. And if the airlines are happy to pay air services to provide it, that's fine. That's a commercial business arrangement. But it's got nothing to do with VFR down in the weeds, has it? Uh, this this no. is where I get cynical because here's my thought on it. If every aircraft that moves anywhere in Australia where it's in range of an ADS-B receiver down in the weeds, so to speak, is able to be tracked, whether that's shown on a radar screen or not, suddenly Air Services and Co. have that data of every movement of every aircraft. And if you want to go paranoid, wouldn't that make it easy to start introducing new airways charges? Uh, well, that has been brought up and uh, it's been brought up consistently uh, along, along this line of logic that we have the capability to provide this service. CAS is the regulator, nothing to do with us, says you must have this service, therefore we'll charge you for it. Because everything yeah. services does is uh, fee-for-service. Yep. And I'm, I must admit that I share your concerns. That because in some of the early papers produced by air services, it contemplated every aircraft flying. Now, this was the boffins doing this. This wasn't something that had been ticked off by the Board of Air Service or anything like this. But this is what the boffins were putting forward, that we could track every aircraft flying in real time because we had universal ADS-B. And therefore, everybody would be able to fly wherever they wanted to, direct, absolutely the most efficient route for commercial operators, 
And then if there happened to be a light aircraft in the way, we'll just tell him to move over out of the way, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful, except that have you had a look at the coverage maps for ADSB? If you have, yes, yeah, I have. well, you look at the coverage maps, and you'll have great coverage down the New South Wales east or the Australian east coast, right? Yeah, the big J curve. Yeah, but also in the J curve, with the new high definition, high power primary radars that are going in, and this is as much as anything um, a security issue as it is anything to do with air traffic control, they can now link up, link up all the radar heads, military and civil, to show a combined picture. The new systems that are going in now and are in part in will do that. They're maintaining the secondary surveillance radar. They're all being replaced, uh, including, as I understand it, most of the remote ones. So any potential savings there, whether they were genuine or not, um, that's gone. And as I said, that's got nothing to do with ADSB. That was a, you know, that was effect- effectively a, a tax, in my view. But uh, most of this is relatively high-level coverage. If you're going to have low-level coverage, so that this grand plan of a complete envelope of all air space would be controlled airspace, uh, we don't even know the number of ground stations you'd need. There's some pretty smart people in the public service. There's some pretty smart people in CASA. But particularly, there's some pretty smart people in the Department of Transport. And they know all this. They understand all this. But they're responding to their political masters. That's what's going on. And I have absolutely no doubt in my mind, Bass, Grant, that if the whole of the private rec sports aviation fraternity, which all combined numbers in the, oh, nearly 50,000 people, without calling in sons and daughters and wives and things to put in protest under their own name, if they all got into gear, they'd kill this thing stone dead. And we'd go back to what we ought to be doing, aircraft who have need for it, voluntarily, fitting ADSB if they think they can make a buck out of it. They're already voluntarily fitting modern GPSs, C-145 and 146. There's already a wide installed database of that so they can take advantage of the advantage of single source navigation and not being tied to using ground-based navigation aids and things like that. And this all applies only to IFR aircraft. Not most of what we're interested in these days here. And so political pressure has brought this about as a result of what's in the white paper, despite the fact that time and again we've shown the whole thing is in fact a great boondoggle. So political pressure will stop it, but nothing else will stop it. Carefully reasoned arguments, (laughs) discussion paper to CASA won't stop it because this hasn't come about as a result of carefully reasoned technical arguments. It's yeah. come about as a result of political pressure. Yeah, yeah. reason and logic yeah. fade so into insignificance against up. political. They're only doing what they're directed by their minister. And likewise, 
the people in the Department of Transport who are involved in this sort of thing. We shouldn't be loading it on their shoulders. They didn't bring it about. They're responding to directions from their political masters. Now, democracy is a great thing. It's way ahead of whatever's in second place. <laughs> but democracy only works when everybody gets off their bum and has their say. Uh, now you hit it. Yeah, so who do, we, uh, who do we call? Who do we write? Well, I would like to see Recreational Aviation Australia getting every one of their members to respond to this, which means getting all those members to get off their backsides and do something. And it needs to be, in terms of political effectiveness, it needs to be direct to the minister, but it needs to be personal letters. Yep. A very, a very second, second best is just signing a form letter uh, produced as a result of, say, an email campaign or something like that. Sort of like get up. But they, they all count. Now, in uh, the ASAC members, the Gliding Federation, the Hang Gliding Federation, the Sports Rotorcraft Association, yeah. the Balloon Federation guys, yep. and the Aeromodelers. Because are we going to have ADSB on every big model aeroplane flying? <laughs> That'd be fun. You yeah. see, if you've got, and, and then there's IOPA, get them off there, you know, get them to get all their, their members to protest. But there's no, everybody is sort of, and, and this is a big problem with aviation regulation in Australia in many ways. It's why we're in the situation we're in with regulation overall. Because people say, oh, there's nothing I can do about it. Oh, it's all too hard. There's a degree yeah. of apathy out there. Oh, they'll do it anyway. Well, yeah. no, they won't. In 1994, CAA proposed mandatory fixed ELTs on every aircraft in Australia. It was going to fly more than 50 miles. Mandatory fixed ELTs because that was the American rule. And at that stage, that was going to cost the GA fleet something in the region of $22 million in 1994 dollars to fit a device with a 95% failure rate in service. AOPA, led by Dick Smith and Boyd Munro, campaigned at a grassroots level and at a political level. And they held it off for long enough that in 1996 there was a change in government and the incoming minister... John Sharp, changed the rules so that, yes, you can have a fixed ELT if you wanted to, but you also had a lot of other alternatives. Portable ELTs, you could even carry a marine-type ELT in your aeroplane if you wanted to, one that actually floats. So get people to, uh, to write to the minister themselves, yes, and, and uh, for good measure maybe uh, copy some uh, senators. Uh, yes, in and, and uh, in this wonderful democracy we live in, it's made very easy for you these days. Uh, on the parliamentary websites, there's complete lists of all the email addresses yep. of every member of the House of Representatives, of every senator. You don't even have to copy out the individual addresses if you pick up the right list. It just automatically CCs to the lot. And yep. uh, people should be getting on to whichever organisation they're members of. Yep. Uh, all the ASAC members, AOPA, RAOS members. 
And if, if you put all those together, there's, there's 11 or 12,000 members of our AOS. There's three and three, three and a half thousand members of AOPA. But ASAC's the biggie. I've, I don't know how many members there are of the hang gliding federation, but there's a hell of a lot of hang gliders. Yeah. Are you going to have to have them as well? I don't think so. And, uh, well, I, I, you realise, of course, that they're even talking about having ADSB on the tops of mountains and big masts <laughs> and things like this. So that, that well, was, They sneak up on you, mate. They, well, that was the result of one of my comments, that, you know, we're planning to have ADSB on everything that moves and some things that don't. <laughs> well, and there's, uh, there's one bit of irony that we discussed earlier in the week uh, that you told me about, which is related to uh, the airlines wanting to the quick, cheap and easy solution of 1090ES instead of going with the broadband solution. But I hear that um, in Europe now, because of frequency spacing, uh, they're actually going to be mandating broadband brand transceivers for ATC calls. That's, that's that correct? correct, Bass. Not only in Europe, in the uh, uh, EU areas or the EASA areas, Eurocontrol and other national ATC systems. In the US, they've already gone to using 8.33 KC spacing on VHF radios in the aeronautical mobile band. And you can't go any more than that. You can't get it any tighter. And already the available frequencies are overloaded. In the US, they're only going as far as 25 kc spacing because the FAA wouldn't even think to impose on 300 odd thousand aircraft a requirement to get 8.33 kc spacing radios because you'd have the second uh, revolution. They've decided to expand on what had been happening gradually anyway. As I said, I've been using Datalink via the ACARS system, either by transmitting to ground-based slave stations or to satellites for ATC communications for something like 15 years. It's not new. But what's happened is that both in Europe and the FAA, they have mandated all aircraft operating at, well, virtually all airline aircraft, everything from sort of regionals upwards, will have to fit a broadband data link for routine ATC communications so that it will, it will eliminate all but about 5 or 10% of current uh, voice communications to offload the existing frequencies. And so the airlines are now hoisted on their own petard. I've never been quite sure what a petard is, but it sounds awfully painful. <laughs> it is. It's a, it's a uh, sticky thing. Not only got there, not cheap, not quick, and not easy, 1090 ES ADSB, but they've got the mandated requirement on a very short time scale to fit a broadband transceiver as well, which ought to be doing the ADSB, but it's not. Wow. And uh, on that note, uh, we're going to thank you very much for your time. It's uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to someone so knowledgeable about both the technology and the politics uh, involved I'm uh, happy to help that's happy to help 
pilots. Prepare, refresh and renew at Flight City. Whatever stage of your career, Flight City makes up keeping and enhancing your skills easy and economical with their two state-of-the-art flight simulators. The fixed base simulator replicates a Boeing 777 and the full motion simulator can be a Seminole, King Air or Citation. Trust Flight City simulators and instructors to help you train for sim checks. Prepare to fly a bigger aircraft, renew your type rating, do the jet orientation training course and more. See flightcity.com.au or visit Flight City at Jandicott. Wild about anything that flies. It's the Air Pigs Podcast. Check us out at AIRPIGZ.com. Looking for a different way to promote your business? Our podcasts are a great way to reach listeners across the Asia-Pacific region and a growing audience around the world. We can produce your ad in-house in a variety of styles or use your own pre-produced commercial. With an expanding online aviation community of professionals and enthusiasts, our podcasts can get your name out there. For more information on our advertising packages, go to www.plainecrazydownunder.com and click on the Advertising With Us link. It's what's down under that counts. This and other great shows at the Aviation Podcast Network. The Voices in Your Head.com. Well, there we go. I tell you what, folks, what an interesting and somewhat controversial in places a conversation, Baz. Uh, he didn't pull any punches, that's for sure. Uh, no, he certainly didn't. And uh, I think that's a good thing because it's uh, it's something that has to be very, very strongly, I would say opposed, but at least, uh, you know, responded to to get things back in perspective. Because uh, after this interview with Bill, I've, I've been looking again at, you know, the kind of equipment that right now uh, would uh, would be available if, if I wanted to implement it. And, and remember, uh, as the proposal goes now it is january 2014 if you want to put an aircraft on the register you got to have this equipment and i'm sure that some of the manufacturers like uh, trig uh, avionics which is a uh, uh, is doing a lot of good stuff with what they want to be low cost uh, uh, equipment both for adsb modus adsb in and out and probably get will get those prices down to about the same uh, as as a current mode c transponder but the problem is still that you know that expensive certified C145, C146 GPS source where I just can't find anything for less than eight grand US. And uh, also because we're getting a slightly different structure to many of the other parts of the world, we're not going to be able to ride on the uh, the benefits of volume. As Bill was saying in the chat, there's only like 30,000 something aircraft in Australia and that's not a huge number for massive production lines, economies of scale. It'll be like everything else with uh, general aviation in this country. I mean, you know, pretty much most of it comes from the United States and it's going to remain that way. And that's okay right now while the dollar is really strong against the greenback, but uh, that won't, you know, that won't last forever. And you've got a sector of, uh, of business really in this country that's really already highly stressed by the uh, the huge cost impost. I mean, it's not a, uh, a cheap hobby. It's not a cheap thing to get into if you want to learn it for a career. And really the last thing we need to have thrown at this 
industry to, to weigh it down even more is more and more cost, particularly when it's a significant cost for this. And I guess one of the things that Bill is raising there is really to what end? I mean, what, what benefit is the average GA pilot really going to get from having this technology, at least in the form that's proposed? Yeah, and not just uh, the GA pilot, it's also the airlines themselves, because uh, at the end of the day, as he explained, for operations around uncontrolled aerodromes, TCAS 2 will do the job uh, just as well if the other aircraft simply have a mode C transponder. That's right. Get a mode C or a mode S transponder and you're covered. Now, all, all this extra equipment and so on, just it turns out it's not 100% required to get that bare minimum safety level that they want. Exactly. And one of the problems is, and uh, I was reading this in the uh, AOPA magazine actually uh, last week, and I'd never really thought about it before, but if you compare the FAA to CASA, in FAA's uh, charter, it actually says that they need to promote general aviation. Now, there's no such thing in CASA's charter. Uh, the, their only role is to make aviation safer. And uh, so the FAA has to weigh everything they do to make aviation safer against that uh, rule that says they need to also promote and encourage general aviation and, and keep it uh, viable. And CASA has no such thing. So the, the logical uh, end conclusion would almost be that doesn't matter how expensive it gets, if it somehow increases safety, we're going to do it and you know, GA be damned. And don't forget, the safest sky has no little aircraft in it. Yeah, well, I often talk on this show about the cultural difference between the way things happen over in the United States and the way they happen here. And of course, it's a much, much smaller community here. And therefore, it doesn't have a lot of um, attraction for your average politician. They know it's not a big vote winner for them. And I know that uh, Bill was saying in that interview there that we really need to get out and, and campaign to these uh, politicians, and particular people like Anthony Albanese, who, who really need to be made aware of the views of the the aviation public, but the problem is not only the apathy that generally exists in uh, Australian culture uh, generally, there's just not a lot of people there to make such a, a really solid representation to him. Yeah, exactly. But other than just the ministers that are in control of aviation, it's also the other ministers and senators, because even though it's not a vote winner for them, you know, if you write to enough of them, uh, there might be enough to say, yeah, this is nonsense. Why are we wasting resources on this? Uh, can we just make it go away and, and vote against it, even though aviation is not part of their portfolio at all. Yeah, the money that's spent on this that's making it all happen for no real benefit, really, is uh, money that they could spend on their portfolio. Oh, damn, you're taking yeah. my money away. One of the one of the opportunities that we have here with this technology, and I mean, it was pointed out in the interview there that New Zealand um, has done some some really interesting things at really not a great cost, but because we are a small community and, a, and small populations, we can sort of be the beta test, if you like, for a lot of these things, but it gives us an opportunity to really, um, you know, if it's done properly, uh, could be looked at, for instance, they're not going to put the full functionality into ADSB here. Well, you know, that, that to me is if you're going to be shelling out that sort of money, well, that's something that really needs to be looked at. How much extra would it cost, you know, to be able to put the extra bandwidth in there, the extra data links that the Americans are getting? It's well, exactly. Just- if I were to buy an ADSB out system now uh, or even an, an in system, hardly anyone else would have it. So I wouldn't see any other aircraft on my screens. I wouldn't get any uh, weather information. And then if you look at how the US is doing it with the UAT system, if you were to buy one right now and you're in an area that actually has coverage, not only do you see other ADSB equipped aircraft, but there's a traffic information service feed from ATC. So if you're in a radar environment and ATC is picking up all these mode C transponders, they also get broadcast to you. So 
if you decide to spend that money now in the US, it's immediately useful. Whereas here, it's just not. But it's uh, only really immediately useful if you can get signal. And uh, that's one of the things that's been raised, especially recently. It's come up again that uh, the ADSB wasn't really working too well, even in Alaska, where it was hailed as a success because you had to be at 5,000 feet to get a signal uh, once you started getting in among the mountains. And this was something that we uh, spoke briefly about with Bill was um, getting surface level coverage in Australia. I mean, there's a lot of hills, mountains and ravines on that crinkly, all those crinkly bits between Melbourne and Sydney and to the north of Sydney and some of the tiger country and the hinterlands and the Gold Coast and so on. And, uh, you know, you're going to need a lot of uh, ADSB stations to give 100% surface level coverage and information feed. I, c- I can't remember the number that he spoke to us off the, off, offline about. Do you remember what it was, Baz? Yeah, I, I, I remember. It was, uh, uh, he said we needed about 100 to get nationwide coverage at uh, 5,000 feet and 400 if we wanted to go down to ground level. And your ground level is where a lot of us fly. Yeah, well, especially I'm skimming along in my balloon or, you know, I've gone to 5,000 feet a few times, but, uh, you know, most of the fun's down below, down lower, below, you know, 1,000 feet and below. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Or even below 5,000 feet because that's the that's the limit that they're now sitting in most areas. And if I look at the coverage maps, uh, if I fl- fly from here to Melbourne, I'm, I'm pretty good. But if I go north uh, where, you know, two parts of the country where I'd really like ATC to keep an eye on me and, where I can contact them and they can see if there's where I am, if there's anything wrong. Uh, there's just no coverage. A couple of other interesting points that came out of that, and perhaps not even exclusively, um, the just, just lie in the domain of ADSB. Um, he was talking there about the possibility of the reduction. Well, we've already seen a bit of this, and the reduction of ground-based nav aids. One of the things we'd really have to keep an eye on is that um, if and when uh, ADSB becomes fully uh, operational, uh, we don't want to see the authorities using that as an excuse to uh, save a bit of money by cutting back on more of these ground-based nav aids and the evidence for that, if you like, uh, can already be seen in the US where they've shut down the Loran system for the sake of a few million dollars. And let's face it, in the context of their economy, that's pocket change. Straight away, what you're doing there is taking away redundancy. And if you're going to have a satellite-based system like this, then surely we need to make sure that we've got the redundancy built in in case that system fails for whatever reason. Yeah, exactly. And that's another uh, talk that we uh, brought up with Bill at the end of the interview. And um, he'd like to come back and talk to us about that because he's actually uh, very busy with this whole navate replacement and, and uh, GPS navigation standards for Australia. He's very knowledgeable on that. And it, it is very interesting because yes, indeed, you can get rid of a lot of navates uh, if you've got a good GPS coverage. Um, but you know, to have really good GPS coverage, you really need WAS. And I know if you've been keeping uh, an eye on that, that arena, but you know, in the past decade, Optus has been launching many uh, satellites, new geostationary satellites, for Foxtel and, and other communications, uh, none of them were launched with a with a WAS package. And there's some interesting reasons why that ha- hasn't been done. And uh, you know, Bill has got some uh, some great opinions of that. So hopefully that we can cover that and uh, just the practicalities of GPS navigation versus ground-based navigation in uh, in a, a future talk with him. Yeah, it's very all very well for the bean counters to work in the in the realm of theoretics. You know what what looks good on paper and what's going to save money. And of course, we live in an in an era of economic rationalism which is something that uh, can really affect us in aviation in particular, particularly when it comes to safety. But, uh, you know, one of the other issues that came up there was um, uh, NAV, you know, uh, airways charges and, and even the avoidance of them by using different call signs. Uh, I think that would bring up an interesting conversation too, guys, because
guys, you know, we go back and talk about our friends in the US again. They rally against user charges like this all the time and it's such a disincentive or it can be a disincentive to safety, particularly in this regard. Yeah, no, you're right there, mate. There is the risk of it happening. I know Bill was saying that majority of times they're not finding people misrepresenting or going quiet, but the the more and more fees and the more and more things get linked to uh, what you're doing uh, and tracking systems, the more incentive there is for people to uh, try and bypass or ignore the tracking. If you're getting back to the, the concept of user fees, I think that whole system needs to be looked at and restructured as, as perhaps part of any sort of review of aviation in general. It, it's okay for, for an airline that's got very deep pockets to pay these air navigation charges, but for your average pilot, your GA pilot, that's a huge cost impost. And when it's leading to potential safety issues like this, then we really need to look at a better way. Yeah, luckily there's no uh, real charges yet for uh, VFR pilots in Class G other than the occasional council that wants to get a landing fee for their strip. It really only comes to play when you're flying IFR because uh, there's en route charges for that. But of course also the uh, the new tower charges uh, at the controlled aerodromes, the Class D aerodromes, uh, which keep adding up. It's ridiculous and you people need to remember that these are the things that we're paying our taxes for already and we pay huge taxes in this country uh, as it is. So it'd be tantamount to paying your registration to drive your vehicle on the road and then being charged a toll on every road you drive on. You mean that doesn't happen already? He says driving East Link and uh, the Monash almost every day. Yeah, well, so, I, sorry guys, so what, what's that? What's a toll road? No, no, uh, no. It's some benefit to live in Adelaide. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it, it's true that councils maintain countless kilometers of roads uh, around their uh, their council that lots of people drive through that never do any business in the town and that's all okay but you know that the 1200 meter of uh, gravel that they put in the paddock you know just outside of town no no you got to pay 10 bucks to uh, to use that bit of road well you know that's the that's the one kilometer of road that gets you anywhere that's the thing and that's that's the way they pitch it in the US I mean I guess that's the point I'm trying to make here is that you know the alphabet groups in the US will band together and make sure that things like this are either a not done if they don't like it or b are done as properly as possible uh, if they think there's uh, some sort of potential in it and that's what we really I guess that's the upshot of what we're really trying to encourage here out of this discussion yeah it is I mean people need to uh, get off their own bums uh, not just to contact their representatives but also contact their organizations because quite frankly I haven't heard very many strong words from the likes of Ariels and AOPA on this subject yet and that is really really disappointing now, the, uh, the comment period for the discussion paper on ADSB and, and some of the issues that were raised here in the uh, the interview with Bill, uh, that expires on the 30th of November. So, uh, you know, it's it's something that if you're listening to this and it concerns you, any of the issues, then you need to be raising them like right now. Yeah, it, that's true. Although, you know, the discussion paper is really only one thing because the only people that read that are CASA and maybe the minister. But if you get onto your other representatives that not necessarily have that aviation portfolio, they too can make a difference and, you know, they, they too can take an interest. And there is no closing period for that one because uh, it, it's going to be quite a while before this discussion paper gets analyzed by CASA and turned into possibly a notice of proposed rulemaking and PRN. So there's, it's, it's never too late. But yeah, do respond to the discussion paper because it only takes a few minutes really to uh, click all the boxes that uh, say not acceptable under any circumstances. And don't forget, as Bill was saying, it's, it's not really CASA that's pushing this. They're being told by the government, by the minister to make this change. You know, the, the government is 
trying to make it look like they're doing proactive and positive things to improve safety and security in this country. And unfortunately, they're not doing any risk management. They're not doing any assessments. They're just firing off from the hip and trying to win votes by looking like they're doing something. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the big thing for government. You got to look like you're doing something. So you got to fire things off now. And usually by the time it's implemented and everyone is, is complaining about how bad it is, well, usually it's someone else who's in government by then and they get to blame the previous people, don't they? So uh, here's a challenge, Australians. Get off your butts. I, my prediction is that based on what I've seen of the Australian culture, of which I'm a firm member of, it will be a case of, yeah, this is really bad. Oh, we've got to do something about this. Oh, hang on, we've got the barbecue. Hey, look, the game's on TV. Quick, give me a beer and I'll do it tomorrow. Yeah, unfortunately, that's true. I just came up with a good metaphor when you mentioned safety and security. I would say that ADSB is to avoiding mid-air collisions what the full body scanners are to stopping people from blowing up airplanes. Oh, touchdown, exactly. Uh, I was actually thinking similar to before that, uh, yeah, it is. The, look, there's great technology in ADSB. It's got some great potential, but uh, same as a, a body scanner. There's great potential in all those kind of things, but uh, the way they're being applied, just I don't think it's the right solution. And also, I, I think we really need to do a step back and look carefully at our safety and security systems and, and really assess you can't have pure safety and you cannot have pure security. So you've got to do the assessment of what's going to get through and how you're going to find ways that work best for the least amount of effort and uh, inconvenience and expense. And having legislation doesn't make you safer. And no. in fact, in some cases, you could make the argument that there's so much legislation, it's taking you so much effort and it's diverting all your effort and funds into looking after that legislation that you're missing some of the important things that the legislation was originally set up to try and prevent. Yeah, exactly. So we're going to put some links in the show notes for the CASA discussion paper and also uh, if you don't know how to contact your representatives there's great links on the Parliament House website so we'll also uh, put a link to that one in the show notes and uh, yeah everyone just respond you know write a few emails or, or better yet write a few letters because that uh, still makes the most impact to uh, the, the ministers and, and senators calls. And, and phone calls, calls. Yeah. They, they work pretty well but uh, letters phone calls letters and then email because uh, they're getting pretty good at dumping the email the other thing to do is you've spent all this time you've written this narky little email that's really really cool you send it off the minister never sees it it goes through their uh, people who just send back a boilerplate response as i'm sure anyone who has complained about the uh, filter the internet filter that uh, the government wants to introduce they've probably received boilerplate that uh, clearly indicates that no one really read what was said the way to get things going is to send the same letter linking two or three departments together and asking for various departments to have their input if you just send it to minister albanese whatever it's just another thing. But if you can find ways of linking in, for example, the ATO and the tax commissioner about how much taxes will be coming in and out, uh, link in occupational health and safety, department of science, things like that, bring in the ministers together, not just a letter to one of them, bring it to all of them. That actually cannot be handled by a staffer and it must go up a higher level to the various mandarins who will finally get upset with it and go to the minister. I think as we're saying in summary here too, folks, it's not that we're saying here that we're against the technology. The technology, if used properly, will be wonderful. And uh, whilst I think there's no substitute for a good situation aware pilot, anything that can be brought into the cockpit to, to aid the pilot to achieve that level uh, has got to be a good thing. But what we want to do here is make sure that it's implemented properly, uh, that it's that's brought in in the most uh, intelligent way possible. It's going to be of, of the maximum benefit to all of us. Well, uh, Baz and Grant, I really appreciate you uh, putting this interview together and uh, Baz, uh, even more appreciate you doing most of the editing on it. And, You're uh, welcome. You know, we should have more episodes like this, gentlemen, where people do all the work for me. I think this is great. <laughs> well, like I said, I can feel another one coming up where 
where we talked to Bill about uh, GPS navigation and removal of uh, navates. Judging by the uh, the tone of uh, Bill's conversation there, he's uh, he's certainly not afraid to uh, speak his mind. And uh, you know, I think that there's really nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, particularly when it's uh, you know such important issues. And you know, you've got a man here of uh, of such uh, huge experience here. Then we all need to be uh, taking uh, some notice of that. So a uh, big thanks to Bill Hamilton for uh, taking the time to appear on the program. Thanks to all of you for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode of Playing Crazy Down Under. But until then, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts. You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website, www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Hey, mate. How are you going today? Uh, do that again, mate. So you're dropping out again. Oh, hell, okay. Hang on, I was just having something double-check something. So just a sec. Wait a minute. I'm making sure. What I'm going to do is over here, I'm going to go and turn off that. Stop your porn download. Oh. Oh, you were recording, I have to. Bill is a former president of AP- AOPA. Sorry. Yep, no worries. Well, you know, I like these episodes where everything else is already done for me. Yeah. <laughs> that is one edit point for me there. Uh, well, for you. Anyone there? No, I'm think about that. Stunned. <laughs> okay, yeah. here we go. Oh, you got it, Baz? Uh, no, you go. Okay. I'll just wait for that car. Yep, cool. It's what's down under that counts. You know, Baz, you ought to do that. Yeah, I know. I, I, was, just think, I was just thinking when you led up yeah. to that, I was like, I, I should have my own saying. Uh, say it in got, Dutch. Say it in Dutch. Jeez, putting me on the spot here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we can edit. <laughs> I can put some really, uh, really nasty sounding Dutch words in. I'll, uh, I'll try to think of something for the next episode. Oh God! All right. Ah, uh, Pika. <laughs> uh, yeah, I did know. I, you know, I can say what's what's down on that accounts, but uh, uh, or I could say what's below sea level that counts. <laughs> <laughs> hey, no, 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 no! This is the bit that. <laughs>